Hi, I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson for another Easton Target Archery Podcast. And it's the first of 2023. Did you did you think we were gonna make it to eight seasons of the podcast, Steve? Eight seasons? Eight seasons, man. We when started did we in twenty fifteen. Did we really? Copenhagen, man. Freak, we did, yeah. Copenhagen. Holy shit. World smokes. Championship in Copenhagen. Uh no, I did not think we'd make it to eight seasons of a podcast. I didn't think I'd make it to eight seasons gainfully employed. Didn't think so, we'd make it to eight episodes, much less eight seasons, I, but here I we mean, are. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Coming up on the big two hundred for uh episode count pretty soon. We'll have to do something special for that one. Yeah, what are we going to do? I don't know. We'll figure what, something what out. What episode is this? Uh, it's on the order of 194 or 6 or something. Okay. Now you're making me look it up. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Easton Target Archery Podcast 196 was the last one. So, yeah, we're looking at 197 for this one. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about our traditional, whether it is or not, is a moot point. I'm making it a new tradition. Our traditional first of the year podcast is the Ask Us Anything podcast. <laughs> yes, I remember that. We've done that many times. We've done it a few times anyway. This is tradition. Now, uh, we solicited some Ask Us Anythings, Asks questions on Eastern Target Facebook because we don't use TikTok. You can't. Right. And so we got a few good ones here. And one of these, I'm going to leave it to you to, to, to select. One of these is going to get an Easton 100-year book. I am not going to select it. It's going to have to be a random draw. Okay. Well, you'll randomly draw it. And we'll announce it at the end of the show. <laughs> but we do have a number of questions here. And I, I think uh, there's, in no particular order, a number of good ones here. What do you say we hit them? Let's hit it. All right. First question. Oh, by the way, later in the show, got a special guest the uh, CEO of the Archery Trade Association. We're going to talk to him about the show that's coming up this week, as well as his prognosis for the archery industry and a new initiative from the ATA to try to get a more consistent experience when you go to a pro shop and get a compound bow set up. So we're going to talk to him about that. That's Jeff Poole that we'll be talking to a little later in the show. But right now, back on topic. Our AMA starts with Jacob Bensold. Jacob's got a question that asks, what are the benefits of shooting a soft vein for compound? I see a lot of arguments for having stiff veins, but I've also heard of shooters who prefer a soft vein. Now, it's true that a soft vein versus a stiff vein, with all else being equal, will flutter a little more and drag a little more, and that can give you a little more stability with nothing else considered. And it's like a feather in that regard. In that regard. It would also take contact better. Now, I wonder about that because of the velocities we're talking about. I don't know hmm. if it makes much difference if it gets, if it hits the rest and it's a soft vein and it hits the rest and it's a slightly harder durometer vein. I, I was thinking that same thing, but then I, in my mind, I'm, I'm picturing how fast these things happen. I don't know, Probably Steve. Minimal. I don't know if it actually makes a difference in that regard. I think it would have to, you know, but it, a little what, bit. Min, what difference can we perceive of it? Enough difference to, to make a difference? I don't know. Yeah, that's the hard part to really quantify. I'm going to tell you what I honestly believe, given the people I know who advocate the use of soft veins. I think it's partly in their head, and I'll tell you why. 
the origin of the soft vein in the context of this thing is that these were actually rejects from Flex Fletch. And there was a particular shooter who thought these must be better. And I think that they got it in their head that this was better and therefore it was better. You know who doesn't use so-called soft veins? Who? I believe Sarah Lopez does not use what you might call an extra soft vein. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, like Mike shoots, Mike Schlosser shoots. Uh, AAE Max? No, he shoots Flex Fletch. Flex Fletch? Historically has. I assume he still is. Yeah. I don't think he was ever like requesting. I think he's using the normal Flex Fletch vein, yeah, right? When I shot Flex Fletch, it was what their previous material was, which was inherently softer than their current stuff. Uh huh. And, you know, I liked it. I mean, other than getting it to adhere. Yeah, that's always the challenge with like it yeah. was. I don't know about now, but it was. Either. I shot yeah. Flex Fletch on my on my uh, recurve arrows for a number of years, and uh, always the same issue. Mm-hmm. You had to either sand the bases, or you had to hit them with MEK and then sand them, or sand right. them and hit them with MEK. Once you got them sticked, it was pretty good. But yeah. um, you know, you, you can't had to, wear them out. Had to figure it out. But man, they're durable. Very durable. Pass through a target. They don't take a lot of holes from getting hit by other arrows. Yeah. Um, you know, then you get other veins. Like the ones I shoot, I shoot an AAE Max, which is it's kind of got like an engineered stiffness to it. Right. Uh, being that it's got a different structural profile. It's a little stiffer the toward vein. the base. Well, it's got uh, basically like a rib structure. Yeah, yeah. Going along the length of the vein. Yeah. So it's got a stiffer base, then it'll open up, and then it'll, uh, you know, gain some thickness and stiffness, and then it'll get thinner again, you know, just throughout the whole thing. Um and they're always been something I've always I've always liked them. You know, I've never had an issue with them. My personal take on this is I think the variable that's the most effective on this thing is besides the size of the vein and the shape of the vein, um, how much offset you're running on it, and whether you have clearance or not. Yeah, and we were Brian Gold and I were just talking uh, about a guy who was you know running a lot of helical and some. The, I think a big mistake a lot of people make in archery. They think if some is good, more is better. So they go, oh, and you see this badly on the hunting side, badly. Mm. Um, you know, a little bit of point weight is good. Okay, let's just keep going crazy. Then yeah. You have these extreme FOC guys yeah. who are, don't know what they're doing. Anyhow, almost, almost culty in that yeah, regard. Yeah, very much so. Um, I got to go back. To, oh, yeah, so anyhow, we were talking to an archer who was running a ton of helical, and any time that would induce contact or anything it would just create worse contact and create uh, a larger miss right so you know like everything in moderation is kind of the way to go in archery you know a little bit of helical is fine yeah I agree Uh, a lot of helical you can just be creating uh, a critical setup but definitely a good question from jacob and i appreciate it jacob oh, yeah. so thanks for that for one. sure our friend steve Yee has a question um and, and of course this one is one that's come up from time to time for a long time steve is asking uh if we think that we have the collective we the royal we i don't know we not not uh, any particular we have hit a speed limit for bows is it even practical to have arrow speeds beyond a certain point Pretty good question. I mean, the second part is really intriguing. Like, yeah, yeah. is it is better it practical? to go faster? Well, but then does does making it go faster force you to have to use a stiffer arrow, which is therefore heavier, which is 
finding you chasing your tail. I mean, you know. You run into material science issue there. You do. Uh, to yeah. answer the first part, if we hit a speed limit for bows, you're talking, I, I want to say, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I know more than most. I want to say there's like a theoretical maximum of about 88% efficiency in a draw force curve. I could be wrong there. It could be a little higher. Yeah, I think it's like 92, but the okay. point is... If it's 92, then we're hitting like 88. Yeah. And you're talking the loss is from things like hysteresis, like heat in the bearings, heat in the string tracks. Yeah. And it's minimal, but it all adds up. A tiny bit of air resistance when yes. the strings come down, you yeah. know. All that stuff adds up to create, basically, you have your theoretical, then you have your real-world maximum. And cams are pretty darn close to as efficient as they're probably going to get. Mm-hmm. So, and still be biomechanically usable. Right. Because honestly, the most efficient the most efficient cam would be kind of square. It, you know? <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be draw. Like, it'd be you hard be to, able to draw, it. draw or impossible to draw, or it would break the string on every shot. Right. Um, the other side of that is you, you would need drawing specific cams, right? Exact, like exact drawing specific cams. Yeah. And no modules, none of that. So it's not super user friendly, and the gains are very minimal. So again, the, is that juice worth the squeeze? And I think when you consider, <laughs> I hate to use this word, but shootability. Yeah, shootability. We were just talking about how that's a made up word today. It's a totally made up word, but you know, it still means something in our yeah. heads. But you know what? You could make a perfectly. I mean, you could make a completely optimized bow from an efficiency standpoint that could drive the arrow as fast as possible. Nobody'd want to shoot it. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, you wouldn't want to draw it. Let's say you were getting whatever the extra speed is. I don't know what's it going to be. Ten feet per second. I'd say ten, twelve feet per second over the top of what bows are doing now. And then some guy's going to come along with a bow that's thirty feet per second slower than yours and smoke you anyways because uh-huh. he's just better at shooting the bow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. You see the need for speed rear its head every few years. I mean, man. going back, I mean, when I started in this game, overdraws were a big deal, uh-huh. right? People wanted to have the fastest setup. So they had, you know, really oblong cams, overdraws. Didn't matter that the bow sounded like a 22 short on every shot and you'd yeah. break your bearings after 300 shots. They wanted that speed. Wow, this bow goes over 300 feet per second <laughs> back then, 1990, 1988, 1987, 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, you can get a reliable, quiet shooting bow, a target bow that breaks 300. Oh, easily. Yeah, easily. They're 320 or better. And is way softer and easier on your shoulders to pull and way easier to let down and much more ergonomic. And you can have that usable speed, what I'll call usable speed, all day long. And at the end of the day, you're way better off now than you were trying to chase those 300 feet per second speeds 30 years ago. For sure. Uh, Right now, the big thing in in hunting bow design is all uh, bows that are enjoyable to shoot, right? They... Low hand shock. Right. I keep seeing that phrase. Very, very low vibration, quiet. No one has really pursued speed the last probably five years. Because and it compromises all those other yep. characteristics that people yep. enjoy. And they've, they've, 
they did five years. The five years prior to that, it was probably chasing the speed. Yeah. And they kind of got to a point where, again, the science, material science or whatever, has kind of hampered great advancement. So now they're on to the, let's make this bow feel good. A good Old-timers, experience. Old-timers will remember there was a bow called the Bear Delta V. The Bear Delta V came out around 82, 83. It had four cams. It had a set of cams inboard inside the riser, and it was a uh, George Trotter design. You know, uh, that's a guy who designed a lot of flight stuff and fast stuff back in the day. Every single shot from that thing sounded literally like a 22 short going off. <laughs> it was it just created this loud clack, and it was like 280 feet per second. Yeah, you know, and. Um, they were good for maybe a thousand shots before you'd have to rebuild the whole thing. I mean, it was, we have gotten so much better. The entire industry of, of building yeah. bows that are reliable, fast enough. Um, but to get back to Steve's question, have we hit a speed limit for bows? As a practical matter, I'd say, yeah, pretty much. Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. Because you can of, always go faster. Yeah, but you're giving something up to get mm-hmm. there. Yeah, so. it, it's it hasn't proved to be a good business model, you know. The the companies that have built the fastest bow haven't really sold a lot of them. Correct. Truthfully, yep. so. Levi Glass is asking: When building and tuning our bows, when do we realize that we've found the perfect setup between accuracy and forgiveness? I've been struggling with this for a couple of weeks and could use some outside the box perspectives. First off, I think accuracy and forgiveness are actually tied to each other. I don't think you need to balance between them. Yeah, I would say it's hard. Again, this is the word forgiveness coming up. and Right. Accuracy yeah. is an absolute. You can measure it. Forgiveness yeah. is kind of a gut feel. It, it very much is. And, and uh, right, accuracy is at the end of the day, what was your score? Okay, cool. Did you score well? Um, forgiveness is, did, did you miss one? Yeah, did you? <laughs> I guess I should say this. An accurate but unforgiving bow is a 299 29X Vegas. A forgiving but less accurate bow is a 327X Vegas, right? Which one do you want to go with? So I know what I'm picking. But um, very much I think they are still tied to each other, even with that said. Um, I, I So I, I struggle to, I guess, fully answer the question. No, but in my head... When I when I feel like I've got an adic- an adequately accurate but also forgiving bow, is when I can get away with stuff. When I expect an eight and I look down and I see a ten, <laughs> that's when I know my forgiveness factor is probably where I want it. I kind of think of it the other way: is when I expect a half shaft ten to the left, like okay, I broke that one. It, you know, I did something either I was moving left or I think I, uh, you know, had the bow canted or torqued whatever i expect a half shaft 10 to the left and it's a half shaft 10 to the left now i've got a forgiving bow it did exactly what i expected it to do now when you make that shot and it's a tweener nine to the left like yeah that's where things come into play that's where i almost always always examine point weight first and foremost that's the one i'll usually mess with first interesting um and i i had you know one year at indoor not or indoor world trials when that was still a thing I had uh, I had some twenty three eighteens. They were new, and I had two hundred and fifty grain points in them. Uh, kind of matched them pretty close to my twenty seven twelves, thinking that would be good. 
And it was one of those days where I felt like I had better break the shot, holding middle perfectly in the middle to get it to land middle. Like if I'm going a little left, it's going way left, you know? And I just struggled through a day with that. Came home, went to 175 grain point. It's been night and day difference ever since. Really? So <clears throat> I'm not saying the point weight is always the way to go, but. It's a, it's one of the it's tools. the first one toolbox. I usually address indoors. Not necessarily outdoors, but indoors for sure. I'll let you pick the next one. I haven't really looked through them all. Okay. Well. <laughs> uh, Craig Murray. I'd like to use the 4mm FMJ for target archery and to straw targets as aluminum is easier to pull than carbon. Is there a point that would fit like a target arrow? Yes. If you go and look at whatever spine 4mm FMJ you have, Easton's website will tell you the outside diameter. Then go and look at a pro comp, find an arrow of a very close or exact outside diameter to your FMJ. That pro comp page will give you a HL point number. So it'll be probably HL point number two or three. So the answer to your question is an Easton HL point. Yep, Easton HL point, four millimeter HL point. Yeah. Um, then just figure out which size one through four you need to yeah. match the shoulder size. And, and Craig's quite right. Uh, for shooting straw targets, an FMJ is great. Um, yeah, it's probably it's just, an underutilized arrow, really. Well, you know, here's the deal. Back in 2008, we made uh, basically an FMJ for target archery. And it sold really well in a couple of places and wasn't real popular elsewhere because most places have evolved beyond 14th century straw <clears throat> target butts. Yes. <laughs> Foam target butts. But, Craig, based on how he spelled the word aluminum, aluminum. is obviously in one of those places where something like an Edgerton target is still used. Oh, I, spe- I, I said the word wrong, huh? according to his spelling. Well, he's saying aluminum, which is my clue that he's in one of those places where Edgerton targets are used. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I could be wrong. Could be wrong. But I'm probably not. So, since Craig is stuck shooting into straw targets, see what I did there? He, <laughs> he is probably right on trying to pick an FMJ for this purpose. It'll work great for that. Um, also, for those of you on a certain coast in Australia shooting into those wool, those sheep wool targets, those are, those are also pretty tough on arrows. All right. Next one. Uh, <laughs> my buddy Sean McKenty in Canada has got a, a cheeky question here. Uh, Sean, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason those people are out of business. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Brendan Ford is asking, how can people outside the USA get a copy of the Eastern 100-year book? Will they be available at Neem? So um, maybe we'll have some at Neem, and I'm working with the staff to try to figure out an international flat rate for ordering. We'll try to get that solved for you, Brendan. Bradford. Bradford Hull. Is there a scenario where an archer should choose an ACE over an X10? Mm, yeah. I mean, I'll, there's a couple I'll of scenarios. I mean, First off, there's a hundred bucks difference. <clears throat> yeah. That's one. Second of all, um, if you're looking for more speed for field archery for the unmarked Mm -hmm. 
ACE over X10. Yeah, for some folks, you know. Yeah. If I if shot you, a recurve for field, I would shoot X. I, ACE. I, I shot ACEs for field. Yeah. You know why? Why give that up? Right. Because you know what, with a recurve in particular, um, you know somebody like Steve with his compound setup, he can figure out the distance within half a meter with a recurve, maybe a meter, and that difference is enough difference to make a difference with an ACE. Do you know what your drop per meter is Depends at recurve on. speed at, say, 50 meters? Yeah, it could be 18 inches, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I want to say... Uh, I I did I ran some stuff on Archer's Advantage one day and looked it up, and just checking the difference, your, your biggest... Oh, you mean between X10 and an ACE? Uh, no, I was just talking like drop per... Like the the total drop per meter of oh, the arrow. Oh, it's on the order of 0.4. I, I can't remember, though. 0.4 inches yeah, per meter? I think so. Huh. Yeah, I remember looking into this and... Um, Depends on the speed, of course. Yeah, what I was trying to calculate was m- my most likely scenario of making a large uh, yardage or di- gauging error, we'd call it in world field, distance estimation error would occur at around 50 meters. So one thing I would do to test a different arrow setup is shoot it. You want to have two arrows that are both sided in to hit at 45 meters. Mm-hmm. Then go to 50 meters and shoot your same sight set. See what the difference is. See which one drops more. You're probably going to find it's not a huge difference. You know, ACE is not going to be drastically flatter shooting. Um, and don't forget the drag factor. Right. It's actually going to drag more, so it, it it could be pretty darn close, but you still have a little larger shaft to catch a line, too. Yep. So that's a little bit advantageous and, as well. And uh, I'm not going to dis- discount the uh, cost difference. Yeah, 100 bucks too. So You know, because you're going to break arrows in field. Yeah. You're going to lose them or you're going to break them, and, yep. you know, it hurts a little Especially, less. Especially, yeah, in some of the places we go shoot where yep. you're shooting at a grass bale. So, yeah, there are scenarios, Bradford, where an archer should, or can at least, What choose. about a short draw recurve archer? Yeah, you see a lot of uh, younger shooters uh, in places like Japan, and you see in Neem a lot of indoor shooters in Neem in France shooting, ACE. shooting ACEs. I think that's mostly because of cost, but... Um, I think you have a good point there. For your short draw or your lighter poundage bows, I think you're probably better off than ACE. Yeah. So uh, hopefully that helps with that. You want to pick another one? I think there's only maybe a couple more. I like the one from Joe Lyons. Joe Lyons. Let's wrap the show up with that one. Okay. Uh, So let's pick one more before that. Let's hit this one from Lights Out Crew. It's okay, kind of yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a technical question yeah. from Lights Out Crew, and I think Steve is exactly the guy to help. He says, for tuning compound bow arrow flight indoors, the relationship between launcher blade angle, thickness, and arrow weight for best flight. He's using a full bore 350, 30-inch long, 200 grain points, about a 510 grain total arrow weight, Hoyt Pro Edge Elite, 61 pounds of 28-inch draw. He's got a 10 thou blade. In a fairly shallow angle on his AAE rest. Now that uh, full bore arrow, for folks who don't know, is a 27 diameter arrow. Yeah. Um, a discontinued 27 diameter arrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he dropped the blade angle down a few degrees because he's getting shots that pop out, pop the, top. out the top. They run up high. 
Uh, he seems more consistent, the softer the support is, but now there's more to consider that I'm missing for instance, knock trouble. Um, here's, here's two things I think is causing that. He, so he lowered the blade angle, which kind of created a little bit more cushion effect. Makes the blade act softer. Yes, which can work. Um, same time, I think he's got such a long arrow, right? He's, 30, he's 28 inch draw, but he's shooting a 30 inch arrow. So he's probably got about, from the point of contact of the blade, he's probably got like five, six inches of arrow hanging over it. Let me ask you a goofball question. Does a softer blade have more tendency to react if somebody's vertical grip pressure changes? I think it, I think it helps soak up some of that, like okay. suspension. Right. And Rio always shot an 8,000th blade because he felt it operated in that very regard. If you started to have a little bounce or shake or whatever, the arrow would soak up on, on that softer blade and continue to maintain its point of travel towards the target. In theory, you know, that might be correct. I don't know. He won Vegas three times with it. So yeah. there's that. There's that. Um, I'm not sure this is... If I were with your setup, the first thing I would do, you have a cam and a half cam system. I would creep tune it by adding half or a full twist to the bus cable. This will often eliminate, if you get a little bit of a weak shot where you're not maintaining as much tension through the back end, it'll prevent that arrow from running up high. Is that advancing the top cam slightly by doing that? Uh Technically, you're retarding the bottom cam. Okay, opposite of what I... Yeah. I mean, kind of effectively the same as what I just said. Effectively, yes. It just depends on how you want gotcha. to look at it from a draw line standpoint yeah, yeah. and all that. Um, so, yeah, adding a adding a half twist to the bus cable is where I start because that's super easy. Um, and that can make a big difference in the holding field, too. Yeah. So, if that gets you to a point where you don't like the way it feels because you can feel like a double tap on the wall or just gets too aggressive then go back but i guarantee that will eliminate some of the high if especially if they're coming with weak shots okay. secondly i think i'd cut the arrows shorter i'd cut them down yeah even so though they're, they're it's already it's so already much. a super stiff arrow yeah who cares just cut it down and i i'd probably cut it like 27 inches or so one more question from dan jensen here which archers Recurve and compound. Would you point a new archer to if you wanted them to study form and technique? Mm. Recurve, study Kibo Bay, study Metagazos, study Kimujin, study. Uh, let's see, one more. Pick one more. Takaharu Furukawa. That is a spectrum of styles, all of which work all of which have small biomechanical differences. And depending on your build, mm -hmm. one of those will work for you. Compound. I think if you're, and strength-wise too, like if yeah. you're a stronger stature shooter, you could probably shoot more like Kim Woo Jin. Yep, and if you're not, more like Kibo Bay. Exactly. The, I personally want to shoot like Kibo Bay, even though... You're not wasting any time at full draw. Right. The Korean women historically are at full draw like you almost can't separate the anchor to the click 
it's almost one in the same sometimes. Yep. Well, and it's so confident, it too. You know, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. I'd say Kibo Bay is actually the longest holding of all the Korean women. And yet, she's way quicker than most. Way quicker than the average archer. There's not a lot of shake happening. She's not breaking down. Yeah. Um, I really, I really yeah. think, personally, that if I had to pick one that I could emulate, it would be her style, Yeah. personally. Especially if you're a recreational recurve shooter, meaning you're not getting to put in 100-plus arrows a night to yep. build strength. Yeah. Now, you may ask yourself, why didn't I say Brady Ellison? For exactly that reason. Most You've got to have... strong enough. you got to have serious strength to yep. shoot the aiming style that Brady uses, mm-hmm. that Jack uses, and that a number of other U.S. archers tend to use. Yeah. If you're a full-time Olympic-caliber archer, sure, go ahead and do that. Absolutely. But if you're not, don't try it because yeah. it's going to be ugly. Yep, agreed. All right, compound. Compound-wise, God. Probably, I have a longer list of people not to look at, personally. <laughs> that's how it is with a lot of that stuff. Um, people who have pretty good technique, I'd watch, like, like Stefan Hansen does it pretty well. How about Sarah Lopez? Um, she, Yeah, she's pretty textbook technique, you know. Um, I was thinking... I, I, a lot of Korean shooters tend to be more or less textbook technique, don't they? They're kind of linear and, yeah, very. they shoot it like a recurve. They draw it back and then they get yeah. their hand around the barrel and they just expand through the wall and it, it goes off. I guess you could argue that they haven't evolved yet to their individual mm-hmm. styles necessarily. Like Ella Gibson shoots a very textbook style shot with follow through and all that like, Mike Schlusser shoots kind of his own thing right he's, he's very kinda, much like yeah he's like his uh, he's got a little bit of that lean and like his alignment you know a lot of the people who would say this is how you're supposed to do it his alignment from like knock uh, release hand elbow down to wrist and all that would be in theory out of whack now you want to talk to someone who can just freaking shoot the same hole all day? Shoot like Mike Slower. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's just, I don't know. I think that's probably just a... Uh, There's Nico Wiener. It's a kinesthetic thing that has a lot of compound people aligned the way they are. Yeah. And shooting the way they do. When I think of Nico Wiener, the reigning world champion, I think of somebody with a very... Um, I'd call it a refined style, right? It's nothing spectacular about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stand out. He's not doing anything flamboyant out there. Yeah. He's just making it happen shot after shot after shot. It's, yeah. And that might be what most of these top shooters have in common is you don't see a lot of variation between shots. Certainly. And you could point to, like, Nico Girard. That's what Ella Gibson is, right? She she doesn't do anything unique right. whatsoever. She just does it the same every really time. Well. Um, Nicolas Girard from France. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's another one who strong shot, good push through the bow. Yep. Yeah, there's there's no shortage of people to watch. I would just stay away from the people who are horribly misaligned. You know, because you don't want to try to teach that. No, there are people who are horribly misaligned who are successful. Let's get oh, this straight. Some of the, in fact, some of the very best, the best shooters in the world have always had. Something Non textbook alignment. Rio Wild comes to mind. Rio, Mike, Chris Perkins, uh, Jesse Dave. with a big bent bow arm. Yeah, Dave Cousins with the nose on the wrong side of the string. Kind I think of there's a lot of. Yeah, so I think you, like I said, you if you're gonna try to teach something, you try to teach the the classic textbook style. 
and then as a body style or shape or arm length or whatever comes into play then people kind of develop their own thing yep that's that's what i was alluding to earlier about the koreans I, i think some of them have not had their opportunity yet to find their own way yeah probably all right and our, uh, Joe, Joe Lyons. Lyons. Joe Lyons. What are you most excited for in 2023? A product, event, or opportunity? Or any of those? I think I'm most excited for world championships in Berlin. Uh-huh. Olympic, That'll be a big one. Olympic qualifier. That's an important event. It's going to be huge in a place where archery has really skyrocketed in participation. I imagine there's going to be a very enthusiastic crowd there. I uh, really believe that the German Federation is right now the most active federation in world archery, uh, just ahead of the French. And we know that they can do a great job. So I think I agree with you, Steve. The world championship in Berlin is going to be the highlight of the season. Trying to think if there's anything else cool like unique to this year happening other than personal stuff that we're not going to get into yeah i don't think anything that's like the one unique event for the year right pretty much something that's not an every year event yeah i think that um as we move into 2023 we will see many of the same things that we've seen in previous years with again the post-pandemic momentum continuing to develop We'll see an opportunity to uh, have, I think, uh, even greater participation in some of the World Cup events. Never did get word on whether the Shanghai leg of the World Cup is going to happen or not. That was supposed to have been decided at the end of December. Haven't seen any word on that yet. I thought they pushed that to 24. That would be the smart move. So Yeah, I can't remember. I, I thought they had that noted somewhere. but Yeah, maybe so, but maybe um, I missed it. Anyway, I'm yeah, no expert. I think this is the year we realize that the Olympics are jammed closer together than normal. Uh-huh, exactly. This is the compressed mm-hmm. Olympiad. It already feels like, think about how many events didn't take place 2020, World. 2021, and then we were in a really late world championships in 21. Asian Games are this year, too. Mm-hmm. Also scheduled for China. So, oh. So, then we hit, you know, we hit 2021 world championships, and they seem not that long ago, really. Yep. And now we're six months away from another, or five months away from another world championship. Yep. And a really important one with Olympic qualification on the line. Exactly right. So, I think, uh, Joe, there's your answer. I think world championship in Berlin is the answer to that question. All right, we're going to change gears for a minute here. Um, There's someone we've been meaning to talk to for some time. He is uh, the relatively new, he's been in the position for a year, relatively new CEO of the Archery Trade Association. And we had a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about this week's upcoming ATA show, among other things. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure, George. Thanks for having me. You know, Jeff, this is a big week for the ATA. We're going to talk about a few things, including the big upcoming ATA show, which is going to take place uh, at the end of this week as we record. But, uh, I, you know, I think it might be a good thing to get you acquainted with some of our listeners um, who might not know you very well. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the ATA. Well, I've been at ATA now for going on a year. 
Uh, and prior to that, I was with the National Rifle Association for 30 years, started there in a, um, a near entry level position and worked my way up through the organization and eventually led uh, several different areas, including uh, membership and um, shows and events and, and also our, our e-commerce area. So, you know, a little bit of a diverse uh, background, but all uh, sort of tools in the tool bag I can use uh, here at ATA. We have a lot of uh, folks who might not be acquainted with the ATA and what it does. The ATA has been around since the 1960s. It started out as the Archery Manufacturers Organization, or the AMO. And a lot of folks who've been in the sport for a long time might still remember it as the AMO. But um, historically, ATA has uh, done a number of things. It's sort of been an advocate for the industry. Um, in the United States, of course, bow hunting is an important part of archery culture. And the ATA has worked closely with states and federal government to preserve the, uh, the structure of bow hunting and also to work with people in Congress to try to keep the rules and the uh, regulations about archery equipment relatively free here in the United States. You know, obviously, some of you folks listening in, in other countries know that you have to have a license to own a bow in some places. Uh, thankfully, here in the United States, we do not have that kind of condition. And it's partly due to the effort of organizations like the AMO and now the ATA. Um, and, and that's still a very important part of what the ATA does today, isn't it, Jeff? It is. Advocacy work is is, a, is an important part, as you mentioned. It's um, um, It does require licensing and, and other um, requirements in other parts of the world. We don't have that here in the U.S., and we certainly would like to keep it that way. Um, but in addition to advocacy, you know, ATA represents both the retailers, the archery retailers, as well as manufacturers. And um, uh, the really the primary mission of the organization is to grow and preserve the sports of archery and, and bow hunting. So everything that that ATA does is centered around that uh, mission. Um, and that includes not only the advocacy, but developing uh, programs for uh, getting new people into archery and bow hunting. We have some uh, curriculum that we share with a lot of other organizations called Explore Archery and Explore Bow Hunting. And, and um, they're, they're really a cornerstone of the resources that we offer to help get um, new archers into archery and bow hunting. Now, you know, I'll, I'll, this is sort of the hot potato topic on a target archery podcast. And we do have, as I mentioned, a lot of uh, international listeners, some of whom live, most of whom live in places where bow hunting is not allowed. But I'm going to point out that without bow hunting as um, a base for the archery industry in the United States, the odds are target archery would be a much, much smaller sport with much less opportunity that the truth of the matter is that the revenue created by bow hunting for mostly American manufacturers is something that subsidizes or has traditionally subsidized target archery. Uh, and that has had a worldwide impact. So I, I recognize that some of our listeners probably find the subject of bow hunting to be 
something that they don't necessarily want to hear about. But I will point out that without bow hunting, modern archery as it stands today, one would argue even archery in the Olympic Games as it stands today, uh, might not exist at least in its present form uh, because of the structure, the overall pyramid, the wide base of that pyramid created by uh, those millions of bow hunters in the United States. So just a, just a, a you know, sort of a, a context situation here. So Jeff, the, um, the ATA every year sets goals and some of the goals are ones that uh, take several years to ramp up to. There's uh, a number of initiatives that the ATA is taking that are going to be launched in 2023. One of those is to particularly enhance the level of compound proficiency around uh, the industry and around the world fundamentally, because what happens here is going to spread. Tell us a little bit about the initiatives that are being taken in that area. Yeah, this this is a hot off the press program, George. You're getting a scoop on this. Um, it'll be announced at the ATA show here next week and launched in, in April. And the program is designed to bring some consistency and some continuity to bow technicians um, in the, in, on compound bows currently. Uh, well, there will be um, later iterations of this program as we expand into um, uh, a, a more advanced version of it and uh, a version that deals um, with recurves. And, um, you know, you, get, you can get to a certain point in the uh, bow setup and, and bow tuning. You can only get so far before you really have to bring the shooter in and, and work with the shooter in, in conjunction with that setup. Um, but this initial program is, um, uh, it's more of a level one course, as I said, designed to bring some, some continuity. Um, we've enlisted the, the help of a pretty elite advisory team to, um, to help us with um, development of the curriculum, which, consists of 15 online um, segments, courses, each followed by uh, a quiz to, to ensure that, that people are following along. So it's basically and online training. It is, it is all online. The initial coursework is online and it culminates with a in-person practical. And these practicals would be held at, um, at various events, uh, not the least of which would be the, the ATA show, but uh, we'll identify some other events around the, the country where we can bring some of um, some of our uh, instructors and uh, some of the advisory team in and, and administer these, these uh, practical tests, if you will, to become a certified, an ATA certified bow technician. Well, obviously the, the goal here is to, as you pointed out, create a baseline of proficiency um, for Botech, Botechs behind the counter in pro shops. Um, but I presume this is not just limited to the United States. I, I have to presume that this will be available elsewhere as well, right? Absolutely. You know, because the coursework is, is all done online, um, you know, it's, it's boundless and, and where, um, the, um, the course can be offered. Um, you know, the only thing to work out would be the practical, but uh, there's plenty of uh, options there. And, and I think that's, that's, you know, one of the strengths of a, of a 
course like this and, and being able to offer it at this level, which is the level of, of taking a, um, uh, an individual who has a some level, a basic level of knowledge of a compound bow and offering the coursework and the structure that they can demonstrate a proficiency in setting up a compound bow and, um, and you know, the, the, the basic uh, tuning um, on a bow that um, will at least get the, the shooter, the archer um, out on the range and, and on targets. And yeah. um, the, the consistency, the, the credibility that it brings um, to Botex, uh, you know, uh, worldwide, there's, um, there's a, there's a, there's a need there for, um, for a certification that, that does demonstrate a certain level of, of competency there that I think the shooter can be confident in taking his uh, bow into a, um, uh, an ATA certified bow technician and uh, is going to get a certain level of, of quality work. Well, as our regular listeners know, there has been an effort for years now to uh, bring compound onto the Olympic program with an opportunity to do that for Los Angeles 2028. So the timing of this is actually quite good. When we consider what's happening in places around the world, we're seeing a surge, for example, of compound in Korea. We're seeing a surge of compound in some other places uh, that are you know, hopefully anticipating this situation where we might see Olympic compound in the future. Uh, we are certainly looking at this as one of those things that will help to continue the universality of the compound bow. Um, you know, we've got so much expertise around the world, 260 countries, recurve is it. And in one of those countries, um, you know, the origin of the compound bow started here in the United States. I, I can see this as being a great opportunity for those countries and those coaches around the world who want to get acquainted with the compound to really get into this thing as a uh, means of entry that will give them serious competency uh, in an organized manner. And so I think this is a really good opportunity on the target side, recognizing that it's, you know, it's really meant for shops and for, for technicians and shops. I think this could be a great opportunity for coaches around the world as well. Well, I, I agree with you. And this, this level one coursework here is designed for, for shops. But as we look at opportunities uh, beyond and get into more of uh, an expert level. Uh, I think that's uh, really where we get into the opportunities for target archers, for um, for coaches, and um, either to um, develop this um, competency themselves or work with certified bow technicians um, in the sort of the advanced tuning of the bow and working with the shooter. Well, Jeff, there's a lot more to talk about with the ATA and this week, of course, is maybe one of the, I'll call it the public highlights of the year. And that is of course the ATA show that's just around the corner. Tell us a little bit about uh, where it is and what it is for those folks who uh, might not be acquainted with the ATA show. The ATA show is, we've, we've billed it as the premier archery event of the year. Certainly the, the premier archery show uh, of the year. And um, uh, COVID, you know, certainly um, wreaked havoc on on the show as it did just about any 
large indoor public gathering over the, the years. In 2021, the show uh, was canceled because of COVID. Uh, we did hold the show last year and, and had a successful show. But this year in 2023, uh, January 11th through the 13th, um, is the first year of, of, of being out from under the, the COVID stigma. Uh, of course, COVID is still prevalent and, and we still have to be concerned with it, but uh, not at the same level it was where it was majorly impacting uh, shows and, and large public gatherings. So we're, we're just thrilled to be back in Indianapolis, which is sort of the uh, preferred location uh, for the show, preferred by uh, at least a lot of the attendees. It's very um, easy to get to by road or by air. And um, the show itself is, is um, recovering well from COVID. We still have about 500 exhibitors and uh, we're expecting over 6,000 uh, retailers and buyers to be at the show. And, um, you know, in, it, in addition to that buyer-seller environment that, that exists, which is, which is certainly a large part of the show, I'm looking at this year's show as an opportunity for um, people in the industry, the retailers, the manufacturers, and everyone in between to, to have the opportunity to get back together. For many of them, it's been three years since we've had the opportunity to gather in mass like this. And, um, and we're really looking forward to a, a, a revitalized uh, event coming out of COVID. And um, it, all, it all gets started next week. You know, I, I think it might be seen by some as a um, sort of a throwback attitude, but I sincerely believe that there is no substitute for face-to-face -face communication with people. That is between manufacturers and customers or old friends in the industry. There's, you know, even even doing a Zoom meeting or, uh, you know, a, uh, an online presentation, it just does not match the opportunity you have to interact with people when you're when you're in the environment of a show or a uh, a gathering, and so you know I agree with you that this is going to be important because, as you point out, it's the first time in three years that a full on. I know last year's ATA show was a success, but this year I think we're going to see a full on effort. Uh, most of the major manufacturers will be there. Easton will have a booth at the ATA show for those of you who will be attending, and um, you know it's clear to me that. Uh, while shows have been perhaps diminished in the context of the last three years, I think that we're going to see, just based on my personal experience going to a few events since COVID, I think we're going to see things come roaring back in some ways. Well, I agree. Uh, you know, the the power of of face to face is is uh, we we've all been forced to do business and communicate with each other in different ways over the last several years, and and we've done it. Um, in the archery industry, in large part because the market has been so strong, um, we've been able to do it. But um, we're start, starting to see the market soften a little bit. I think that um, uh, the opportunity to be back face-to-face, -face, reinforcing those relationships, um, learning about the new products and, and hands-on uh, demos of the new products. And and learning about them from the experts, either the people that develop them, uh, the technical staff or the, or the sales staff, um, and not being completely reliant on uh, the sales reps in the store, um, 
I do think that uh, we're poised to have a really good show this year. Well, Jeff, it's, you know, it's been challenging economic times, partly due to, you know, what we just discussed, which was, which was COVID. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of economists are looking at is that we might not be looking at the strongest financial period for a lot of folks. And one of the interesting things about archery in particular is that it has a reputation of being one of those sports that does very well during the, you know, tough economic times, recession times. Um, you know, it has been referred to as a recession sport in in history, and uh, history has borne that up pretty well. Uh, back in 2008, we saw a surge of, of archery sales. I think we're looking at the potential for something like that maybe at this time. Um, what are your thoughts on that in, in general? Well, it's a very interesting time, as you said. Um, many many people do think that we're poised to go into a recession. I would not be so bold as to say that 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 uh, archery in our our industry is recession proof, but I think history has shown that it can do quite well in a recession, primarily because it has a, a relatively um, low cost to entry and a and a low cost of use. Um, it is, I mean, let's face it, it is, it is something that we do because we enjoy doing it. And yeah. uh, that supersedes uh, a recession a lot of times and, and, and other um, economic ter- turmoils that we might be under. COVID did a, um, it, it, it did a number on us. And I don't mean that necessarily in the negative. Uh, as many uh, outdoor industries benefited from uh, the public and uh, we, we were all forced outside um, for our activities over the last several years and, and archery and, and bow hunting certainly benefited from that. So we are, we are getting past, we are sort of in a post COVID environment now, and we're seeing that uh, in terms of sales softening a bit, but softening um, on the backside of a sales spike. So we have to keep things uh, in proportion there. Sales are still very, very strong by historic measures. And um, all indications are that um, even if we go into a recession, some say we might already, already, already be in one, but even if we were to go into a mild recession, that the expectations are that sales will hold up pretty well uh, in the archery industry. Well, participation seems to certainly be um, an indicator of, of that because we're seeing, for example, uh, registration for Arizona Cup just opened up and already it's filling up. Um, we're seeing a uh, big turnout for Vegas this year, the, the big Vegas indoor shoot. Yeah. Uh, you know, and World Archery is a full calendar, of course, uh, leading up to the uh, World Cup final that'll be taking place in the uh, fall in Mexico. Uh, we're seeing a lot of opportunities for people to shoot and a lot of opportunities for people to uh, participate in the sport of archery without having to spend a lot of money and travel very far. Um, wherever you are, uh, there's going to be an archery event. And one of the great things about our sport, you can get your bullets back. <laughs> you know, we, we, can right. get our, we can get our arrows back. And uh, so that keeps the cost down as well. That's, that's right. I'll tell you uh, another benefit that we have, uh, George, is and. In, in, I guess a gosh, a benefit of COVID was that it really drove a lot of new um, new archers into the sport. Um, we do a survey of, uh, among our retail members on a quarterly basis, and a, 
a the, our retailers are reporting that a full one third of their customers right now are new to archery. That is that's a very high number, and and I think that is a big part of the reason that uh, we expect um, the um, archery sales numbers to hold up pretty well um, in the next uh, twelve to eighteen months. And as you mentioned, we're seeing increases in participation levels not only from the new uh, new folks to the sport, but um, those that are that are well embedded into the sport as well through uh, competitions and and the like. So um, I don't think that uh, we're we're as uh, susceptible to um, the recession as a lot of other industries, fortunately. But it doesn't mean that that our retailers and our manufacturers don't need to be making smart decisions. Jeff, we're uh pushing past the time that I told you we'd need, but I, I have one more uh, point to make. And that is that uh, your point about a 30% uh, increase is important. But I think another part that's important is retaining those people, keeping them uh, enthusiastic about archery, keeping them in the sport. And just to go full circle, I think efforts like the ATA's certification program for techs has a role in giving people a satisfying outcome when they go to a pro shop, because pro shops are still the heart of our sport, uh, giving them a role in uh, helping maintain that relationship with the customer, the consumer, the person who's entered the sport. And I think that that's an important uh, focus for ATA, don't you think? The the retail shop is, is an extremely uh, important focus to us. For those reasons you just mentioned, they, they are the uh, the front line, if you will, for these new folks that are coming into the sport and their experience in the shop is going to uh, play a, a very big role as to whether we're able to retain those new shooters or not. And um, um, programs for retailers is a is a focus for us uh, moving forward. Uh, retailers, I mean, let's face it, they they uh, many of them are in a, in a, a tight spot. They. Um, they have growing challenges of the current landscape of uh, online sales. Um, they've got YouTube, do-it-yourself videos, um, and, and just the pressures that are added by the uh, big box stores. So uh, working with our retailers is um, a major emphasis for us moving forward and um, giving them the information and, and um, helping them deal with, with that environment, plus just the normal um, concerns, issues that they have in running their business from inventory to margins and cash flow and, and staffing. Um, ATA is developing programs to help our retailers. And um, um, again, I think, I think we all will benefit from uh, these new archers, new people to the sport and um, their relationships with retailers. Jeff, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. I, I know you've got a super busy week ahead. Wish you all success with the show coming up this weekend in Indianapolis. And uh, we'll want to catch up afterward and uh, talk about, you know, uh, more about the compound initiative as well as uh, the outcome from the show. So I hope you'll be willing to join us again. Sure will, George. Thanks for having me. So uh, again, thanks to Jeff Poole for taking the time to join us uh, in this very busy week before the ATA show. The ATA show. Yeah. Um, you're not going. Right? I'm not going. I'm not you're going. not going. 
Um, in Indy this year, better than Louisville. It is in Indy, and uh, Gary and the crew will be there from Easton. So there will be an Easton booth there, and uh, I'm sure that uh, it's going to be a good show. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, I just don't have the time to get to all the stuff that I want to get to, and that's one of the things I'm not getting to. Well, we got a lot coming up. Yes, we do. You know, we've got uh, Lancaster, we've got Neem. You're going to Neem. Yeah, Neem. It's Neem, then Lancaster, then Vegas. Yes, and I really I feel bad because I, the folks in Osaka keep asking me to go to the Osaka Indoor. It happens to be the same time as Vegas, mm. and I've already committed to do the announcing for the Vegas shoot finals, so I can't go to Japan, which kind of, uh, to be brutally honest with you, I'd rather go to Japan, but... Um, I made the commitment to, to do the Vegas finals, so I'll do that. Um, but that is a big event in Osaka. There's going to be about 700 shooters at the Osaka Indoor at the uh, same arena, Steve, where they have the annual sumo tournament in Osaka. They just had that, right? Uh, Christmas deal? They have two different ones. There's another one that's going to be in March. Wasn't the guy who won this one... He was, like, really unheralded. Like, no one thought he would get very far. You you got me completely by surprise. I haven't <laughs> followed it at all. I follow all sports, Obscure Sports Weekly. Clearly. Um, no, I'm, I don't remember where I saw that. But I'm the, impressed. The guy who won was super unheralded, not expected, and then he went out and was just dominating the other sumos. I Well, you know what? I am just impressed. I'm sitting here dumbfounded that finally, after all these years... <laughs> You know far more about something that happened in Japan than I do. <laughs> Let's look it up before we All right. bail on this Yeah, show. do that. Look it up. But yeah, it's, um, it's going to be a nice event. And uh, at the moment, we are... Uh, really, Vegas is the, is the big thing. And of course, we're going to have a little visit coming up pretty soon from uh, a major team, which we'll talk about when, when they get here. But what do you got? I'm not... You're not finding it? Finding anything that I... Are we going to have to redo this show ending or... No, this is a great way to finish the show, I think. Ah, but there's one more thing. The winner of the Easton 100-year anniversary book, based on random selection of the questions that were submitted for this show, Jacob Benschold of Sveria. Jacob, congratulations, and uh, we'll be sending you your book in short order. Once again, everybody, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us for the podcast.